The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Perhaps the most fundamental truth that every follower of Jesus Christ needs to learn and remember is that God does everything He does for His own glory. Everything God does, He is motivated by manifesting His own glory. He's the most glorious being in the world. And He's determined to make known that glory to the world that He's created. And in doing so, to cause the creatures that He's created in His own image to behold that glory and to experience in beholding that glory our very greatest potential of joy. Joy that comes from knowing Him. Joy that comes from beholding Him as He truly is. Now we teach this to our children. It's the very first point in the children's catechism. In fact, I often think to myself, Our children who know the questions and answers to the first three questions of the children's catechism have more biblical, theological understanding and foundation than a lot of people who sit in churches for their whole lifetimes. Who made you, kids? Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. Right there. Did you hear it? They got it. That's foundational. We teach that to our children because that's what the Bible teaches to us. This is what the Bible says, what God says about Himself. From Old Testament to New Testament, this is an overarching message of Scripture. For example, we see it in Isaiah 48, verses 9, 10, and 11. Just listen to it. God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. And he repeats it. For my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's so determined to manifest his glory that he's going to do what he does in a way that will set it forth and he is going to protect his glory. He's not going to share his glory with anything else. God chose people from eternity for his own glory. Did you hear it this morning when Jared read it? Ephesians 1. 4, 5, and 6. Listen to it again. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God do that? So that His grace might be seen as glorious and be praised as glorious. God created people for His glory. Isaiah chapter 43, he says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He created the nation of Israel in the Old Testament for His glory. He says in Jeremiah 13, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Why does Israel exist? Why did they exist? Why did God create them? For His glory. He raised up Pharaoh to be the king of Egypt. For his glory. Romans 9, 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Why was Pharaoh born? Why was Pharaoh raised up to be the king of Egypt? Scripture tells us it was for God. God rescued his people Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. The Exodus? Why? Why did he rescue Israel from Egypt? For his name's sake. To show his power, to make a name for himself in the world. All that God does, he does for his own glory. Now, we could spend the rest of our time together just going through other of the dozens and dozens of texts in Scripture that specifically state this, that specifically teach this. But instead, what I want to do today is to continue in our ongoing study of the Old Testament book of Judges and look at chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Judges to see how God there dramatically saves His people in ways that display His greatness and His glory. That's what the 4th and 5th chapters of Judges teach. Now they're found on pages 203 through 205. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's provided for you in the chair in front of you. If you're not accustomed to looking at a Bible, the, the big numbers on the page are the chapter divisions. And so when I refer to Judges 4, it's the fourth chapter of Judges. If you find the big number 4, that's where I'm going. And the little numbers are references to verses. And so when I say Judges 4.1, it's the first verse of chapter 4. That's where we're going to start this morning. And then we're going to read all the way to the end of that chapter. But we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 together because they focus on the same events. Chapters 4 tell the events as a narrative, as a story. Chapter 5 celebrates those events by way of a song. And so we'll look at chapter 4 specifically, and then we'll call in insight from chapter 5 to help us understand it and celebrate it as we ought. So hear the word of God as I begin reading in Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hirasheth Hagoyim. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had on up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword. 
And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hirasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the, the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. God dramatically saves his people in a way that reveals his glory and his greatness. This is quite evident in the retelling of this part of Israel's history. It it reads almost like a stage production. It gives us the setting. It gives us the key actors. We see the dramatic tension, and then we have a surprise ending that resolves that tension. I want us to study the events of chapter 4 and chapter 5 by looking First, at the perspective of the need of God's people to be saved, to see what it is they needed to be saved from. And then I want us to see how God actually saved them. And then finally, I want us to consider this morning how we should respond to God's dramatic act of salvation. Well, first of all, God's people need to be saved from sin and sin's consequences. This is the first three verses of chapter 4, as it just kind of sets the stage for what's about to happen. Listen to it again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud had been the previous judge, and he was the one who had delivered Israel from oppression of this wicked king that had held them in bondage for years, and now he's died. Ehud's died, and the peace that they had experienced under Ehud, is about to go with him. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of, of Jabin was Sisera, who lived in Hirasheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help because this wicked king and his wicked commander had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So what do we see here? We see this pattern of sin and rebellion repeating itself. This is part of the cycle that we're going to see. We've already seen it in our studies thus far of Judges. We're going to keep seeing it over each of the 12 different epochs that are given to us in this book where the people turn away from God and they do evil in His sight. You see, it says they again did what was evil. Now, what is this evil? Well, it's already been identified for us. If you recall back in the second chapter, beginning in verse 11, uh, down through about verse 23, the evil there is identified as having two components to it, turning away from the living God, turning away from the Lord and the Lord's commandments, and turning to idols, turning to many gods, the gods of the people around them being worshipped by their unbelieving neighbors. God takes it personally when the people that he's created for himself reject him and reject his commandments and live as if he were not God. To live as if God is not God is evil in the sight of the God who's created us. In verses 2 and 3, we see the consequences of their evil. Well, they provoked God to anger. You see it in verse 2. He sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And Jabin's military commander, Sisera, oppressed them, the text says in verse 3, 
for 20 years, but notice that the author says cruelly, cruelly for 20 years. After the death of Ehud, the people reverted back to their old ways. Once the outward restraints of a godly ruler were let go, were removed from them, they didn't think disobeying God's commandments was any big deal. I mean, after all, they're living in Cana, Canaan, and the people of Canaan do it. The people of Canaan have their way of thinking. The people of Canaan treat their children this way. So what's the big deal if we just kind of go along with the way that our neighbors think and our neighbors live? In fact, their neighbors affirmed them in this, celebrated their being one of them. But God took it personally. And God delivered them over to this cruel oppression of this wicked king with his wicked commander, Sisera. Now, a little bit later in the text, we're going to see at the end of chapter 5, some of the devastating nature of this cruelty that was committed against Israel. What's going on here is what one writer has said, that the Israelites are being Canaanized again. They're being Canaanized. They live among people who don't know the true God, and they just begin to assimilate the way of thinking, the way of choosing the values of the people around them. And they don't think it's any big deal. It's just kind of the way people live. It's the way life is, right? Just the culture. God takes it personal. When His people deviate from His revealed will that is designed to help reflect His character to the world, He calls it evil. But once again, God doesn't just leave His people in their sin, in their evil, in the misery that results from it. When they cried out to the Lord for help, verse 3 says, He saved them. In verses 4 through 24 tells us how he went about saving them. He saves his people in the drama of human history. There are three main characters in this drama that we see portrayed here describing how God saves his people from their sin and misery. Again, the three main actors are Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Deborah and Jael obviously are women. Deborah is introduced first. Verse 4 identifies her as a judge, a prophetess in Israel. She's the only one of the judges in this book that is described in any sense as holding court. She actually is judging. People are coming to her to set place that she had established where she would be, and she would give rulings to them. Do you see that in verse 5? She used to sit under the palm of Deborah, even had it named after her, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people came up to her for judgment. She spoke the word of God as a prophet of God, just like other Old Testament prophets did. Verse 6, she, through prophetic understanding, tells Barak God's command to raise an army. And then in verse 7, she tells Barak of God's promise to give him victory in leading that army against Sisera. She says in verse 7, quoting God, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Verse 14 reiterates this promise. Deborah is the only judge in the book of Judges who herself was not a warrior, and yet she was filled with wisdom. She was inspired by God's Spirit to speak the very words of God. She was a godly and faithful leader in the nation of Israel. As the song puts it in chapter 5, if you look at that, verses 6 and 7, she sings this, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, travelers kept to the byways, the villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Because of the oppression of these enemy forces that had come in to hold the Israelites in bondage, village life, life all but ceased. People were afraid to travel the main highways anymore because of what might happen to them at the hand of their oppressive nation who had held them in bondage. 
until Deborah was raised up and became like a mother in Israel. A mother who nurtures and cares and knows what needs to be done. One who is empowered by God's Spirit, who knows the Word of God, is unashamed of the Word of God, and helps people live according to the Word of God. Now, if that raises questions in your mind, which I hope it does, I encourage you to come back tonight because we will talk about some of those questions of Deborah's faithful leadership in Israel. Well, next we have introduced to us Barak. He was summoned by Deborah, and he received God's word from Deborah. Deborah tells him, God has said, go raise an army. But then Barak says, I'll do this, but only under this condition if you will go with me. Look at verse 8. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. We see him then leading the army that has been raised successfully into battle. He goes against the powerful empire of Jabin under this wicked, powerful commander, Sisera. And Sisera's imposing army of 900 iron chariots. You see, twice we are told, 900 chariots of iron. This is the beginning of the Iron Age, the ending of the Bronze Age. And one of the great weapons of warfare that was developed were these iron chariots. They were like the Apache helicopters of the ancient world. You didn't want to face one of these things, much less 900 of these things. They could have decimated an army of 10,000 without much difficulty. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 19, when we're given a little summary of Judah's going into the land of promise, verse 19 says they, they didn't take the plains people because they had chariots. And they, they couldn't take them because of chariots. It, it, it so intimidated the tribe of Judah that they thought, Chariots? No, we're not going to do it. And yet 900 of these iron chariots are what Sisera has under his command, and they are routed by Barak and his forces. Barak and his forces thoroughly defeat Jabin's army. Verse 15 says they were routed. Verse 16 says Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hirasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. You wouldn't have ventured to guess that happening at the beginning of this battle, but that's exactly what happened. Verse 24 ends the chapter with this summary statement. In the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Barak led the Israelites to complete victory over what by every military measure was a superior enemy. What do we make of this? What are we to make of Barak? I mean, how do we understand him? Very often he's portrayed as a cowardly man because he wouldn't go fight unless a woman went with him. His terms seem to be less than manly. When read this way, Barak is portrayed as being reluctant and fearful and unmanly. And those who see him this way interpret Deborah's words in verse 9 as a rebuke to him in his cowardliness. I will surely go with you, she says. Nevertheless, the implication being because you're dependent upon a woman going with you, the road which you're now on will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. But I'm not convinced that that kind of reading of Barak is accurate. I think it's a little too harsh in judging him that way. And the reason that I've come to this conclusion, or actually there are three reasons I've come to this conclusion, I want to give them to you. First, I don't see Barak as being cowardly because his words to Deborah don't have to be seen. They don't have to be interpreted as cowardice at all. She was a prophetess. She was one to whom God had given his word. She's gifted and called to communicate his word. Now, you, you think about it for a moment. If you were told that God wanted you to go up against 900 Apache helicopters, wouldn't you want a prophet with you? And wouldn't you want somebody that God speaks to and speaks his word? I would. And so when he says, if you'll go with me, I'll go, doesn't necessarily have to be an expression of cowardice. 
cowardice, but rather an expression of his dependence upon the word of God. In fact, I hear in his words echoes of words that Moses spoke to God after the golden calf incident in the desert. In Exodus chapter 33, God says, Moses, you lead these people on. I'm done with them. What does Moses say? If you don't go, I'm not going. I won't go without you. In a sense, I I hear that in Barak's statement to Deborah. He's willing to lead Israel if the person that God has ordained to speak his word will go with them. But a second reason that I don't interpret Barak this way is because Deborah's words in response to him, to his terms and conditions, don't have to be taken as a rebuke. But they can be simply taken as a prophetic fact. She's just telling him this is the way this is going to go down. You'll lead the army, but you won't have the honor of taking Sisera personally. Now, people who are just kind of superficially familiar with the story think that what Deborah's saying here is that honor is going to go to me. That's not who she's talking about. She's talking about Jael. She's talking about another woman who will receive this honor of taking Sisera out personally, and exactly that is what happened. The third reason that I'm hesitant to throw Barak under the bus is because what the New Testament says about him. In Hebrews chapter 11, he's listed among those people of faith in the Old Testament. The author says, I don't have time to tell you about all of these people and lists several judges, including Barak, and describes those as people who conquered kingdom. He's a man of faith. He's commended in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. So for all these reasons, I think it's more accurate to see in Barak a man whose faith is worth emulating. And in fact, when we go back and look at the text, we can see some lessons in Barak's faith that are worth learning. He teaches us something about faith. First, he teaches us that faith is submissive to the Word of God. He's not willing to go without the mechanism that God had employed at that time in redemptive history for communicating His Word. He wants the Word of God. He's going to Trust the Word of God. You know, one of the big problems we have in our day with people talking about faith is they think faith is just positive thinking or faith is really hoping or really believing something strongly. I have faith. I have faith. And their faith isn't in God's Word. It may be faith in their abilities to get something done, faith in what they hope will happen, faith in a sense of this is a good thing, a good outcome that I'm just going to really pursue and I have faith it's going to happen. It's not the Word of God. The only kind of faith that honors God is faith that takes God at his word. That says, this is what God says. I believe it. I trust this. We learn that and we see that in Barak. Secondly, he shows us that faith is courageous. He's going against an empire that has cruelly kept them in bondage for 20 years. 900 chariots of iron. And what he's got is now just a a group of 10,000 volunteers. And yet he's willing to do it. He's willing to go up against what, in many respects, are insurmountable odds. But thirdly, we see in Barak that faith is humble. It's humble. He doesn't care who gets credit. He's he's told, okay, you're not going to get credit for this. This is what God's told you to do, but just be aware of this that it's going to be a woman who gets credit for taking out Sisera. Even after being told that, what does he do? He goes. You think he's concerned about what the headlines will be tomorrow? Is he concerned what people are going to think about him? Is he concerned about this story being told so that he's the hero? It's not it. He wants to do what God told him to do. Let the credit be distributed wherever God sees fit. He is committed to doing what God has told him to do because God has told him to do it. Well, along with Deborah and Barak, the third main character in God's drama of salvation here is this woman, Jael. Now, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's really, you see the, the, actually the creativity of the author here under the inspiration of God's Spirit and how he sets this up in verse 11. 
He, he first almost introduces her, but he introduces her setting in verse 11. He's telling the story of what's going on, how God's saving his people, what he's going to do. And then we just have this little parenthesis in verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, I mean, it's just, it's not part of the story. It's a parenthesis. Heber had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanatim, which is near Kadesh, which is going to be right next to the battlefield where the war takes place. So the author puts that in there, then he goes on. You think, well, what's up with that? We get what's up with that in verse 17. The part that J.L. plays in this drama picks up in verse 17. Sisera, with his forces and his chariots having been soundly defeated, routed on the battlefield, ditches his chariot and makes his way to the tent of J.L. and Heber. And verse 17 says he does that because they're allies. There's peace between them. Jael, seeing him, encourages him to come into their tent. She covers him up. He asks for water. She gives him milk. There's no explanation for that, except maybe there's some kind of sedative effect she was hoping would kick in with milk. But she comforts him, covers him, is seemingly offering him protection. Then she kills him. I mean, look at verse 21. This is, again, it's just fascinating the way this is written. Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And, and then the author said, so he died. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> okay. You know, is that really necessary to say that? But it's, it's there, this dramatic effect of telling us what happened, how it happened, what the consequences were. Now, this is fascinating on several levels. First of all, because women were responsible for setting up and taking down tents in that nomadic culture. That was their responsibility. It was just part of their domestic duties. So she would have been very familiar with tent peg and hammer and how to use those instruments. In one sense, it's, it's like she killed this guy with a household appliance. It'd be like a frying pan today, you know, just take him out. Something she was familiar with, she knew how to use, she killed this cruel commander then when Barak shows up in pursuit verse 22 jail shows Barak the body the man you're seeking is in here come in now think about what this must have been like Barak's been chasing this guy and she says he's in my tent I mean, I'm sure he's got his sword drawn he's like, you stand back you know opens the tent door and he's got this peg he's got to look at jail and think I'm glad you're on my side and uh he sees this enemy, this cruel man has come to this deadly end exactly the way that Deborah prophesied that it would. The word of God has been fulfilled. Well, why did God save his people in this way? Why did he employ three people playing different roles? Well, one reason I think is legitimate for us to see in this is that Though all three of them were instrumental in saving Israel from Jabin and Sisera, none of them is the real hero of the story. None of them can take credit in and of him or herself as being the catalyst that got it all done. Deborah gave orders to Barak, but those orders were the word of the Lord, not her own word. Barak led the 10,000 troops but God is the one who had promised him in verse 8 that he will give Sisera into your hand. Then in verses 14 and 15, when Deborah said to Barak as a response of God putting the word in her heart, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So when he goes out, verse 15 says, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Even Jael, this shrewd woman that raises a lot of questions, ethically, but this shrewd woman who determined that she was going to stand against the evil this man had perpetrated against Israel and against Israel's God, even Jael, though she plotted and executed Sisera's death, when Deborah prophesied that was what would happen, she put it like this in verse 9, 
the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So who's, who's the real hero of the story? It's God. It's the Lord. He's the one who's moved the parts. He's the one that's equipped the people. He's the one that put the instruments in place. But he is the one who alone is the Savior. He saves his people from their sin and consequences, though he uses various instruments to do so. Now, brothers and sisters, this is very instructive for us. Something we need to think clearly about, to see the salvation that we have from God as being completely God's work. If you're saved today, if you know the living God, it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone who is the Savior. It's because God, before the foundation of the world, looked into what was going to happen historically and chose you to be saved by His Son. It's because God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to do what you and I cannot do for ourselves. And that Jesus, giving up the glory of heaven as the eternal Son of God, became a man and lived as a man a life of perfect righteousness, doing all that God's law required, and then, stepping in the place of His people, substituted His life for ours on the cross, bearing God's wrath against our sin, absorbing the payment that our sin deserves, carrying our sin away, so that through faith in Him we might be reconciled to God. So that we get what He earned. That's how salvation comes. So that if we're thinking right, if we're seeing it rightly, when we talk about, think about our salvation, we will be talking about, thinking about grace, mercy, praise to God. But we won't harbor thoughts of, well, yeah, you know, here's what I did. This is what I did. Then I did this. And because I thought this, and because I did this, then I just decided, okay, I've got to seal this deal. I'm going to do this as if, we ourselves are the main actors. But rather, we'll recognize that, yeah, we chose Jesus because God chose us. We love Jesus, but it's because God loves us. We're following Jesus, but it's because Jesus came for us. We believe His Word, but it's because the Spirit opened up our understanding to teach us this Word is true. This is vital for us to remember that all we are as saved people, is by God's great grace. As we think about ourselves and as we think about other people that we want to commend this grace to. Have you ever found yourself thinking, well, this guy is so far gone, I don't know if it's going to do any good to talk to him about Jesus. I mean, he's so rejected the things of God. He's so done with Christianity. I don't know if I should waste my breath. I I don't know if he'll ever be saved. If you haven't said it, if you ever thought it, if you ever thought it, if we understand the way salvation is from beginning to end a work of God's grace, we will rebuke those thoughts and throw them away. <laughs> Say, look, if God can save me, he can save anybody. If God can overcome all the rebellion in my heart, the rebellion I see that he's overcome in other people's hearts who testify of his saving grace, he can do it for anybody. We will not be discouraged to talk about this gospel, to commend Jesus to anybody because it's his work. God's people need to be saved from sin. God's the one who does the saving. He does it through the drama of human history that was displayed there in Judges that was more finely, completely displayed in the giving of his son. But the final thing I want us to see this morning is that God's work in salvation causes his people to see and celebrate the greatness and the glory that is his. That's the point of the song in chapter 5. In chapter 4, when the historian is telling what happened, the Lord's only mentioned four times. But in chapter 5, when the poet is reflecting on what happened, the poet mentions the Lord more than a dozen times. God is set forth as worthy of praise because he's the one who ruled and overruled in all the affairs of Israel's life. It's the Lord who marched out with the army of Israel. Look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 5. When you went out from Seir, it's praise to you, Lord. When you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. 
the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Why was Barak able to overthrow Sisera? Because God was with Barak. God marched out with their armies. And we're told in this little expression of the song how the iron chariots were defeated. Rain. Rain came. The rain came and began to muddy the field. The Kishon River flooded, which explains why Sisera would abandon his chariots when the wheels got bogged down. If you look at chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, it says, From heaven the stars fought. It's like the, the heavens are for us. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. The chariots don't come with, with mud tires. And they work great on dry ground. But here they are along the river Kishon. It begins to rain. The river begins to flood completely unexpectedly. I mean, why would Sisera abandon his chariot? It can outrun anybody. But stuck in mud, it's not of any use. And so we see God is the one who gives the victory. We also see God is vindicating his honor and rescuing his people in the way that he rescued his people by the method in which Sisera is killed. This is fascinating. Deborah sings of Jael's exploits in verses 24 through 27 of chapter 5. I'm not going to read it, but it's pretty graphic. I mean, this is the poet's perspective. And celebrating the way that this wicked Sisera was put to death. And then, look at verse 28. Deborah, in her song, begins to imagine what Sisera's mother may have been thinking on the day that her son was killed. Her son had gone out to battle time after time after time again. Always come back victorious. He had 900 iron chariots. He's able to take out opposing enemies. But listen to what Deborah celebrates poetically as she envisions what Sisera's mother may have been thinking. Verse 28, chapter 5, Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of the chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. And here's the answer that Deborah envisions Sisera's mom saying. Have they not found and divided the spoil, like they always did? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as a spoil? The words that Deborah puts in Sisera's mother's mouth tell us a lot about the nature of the cruelty that Jabin and his commander Sisera had exercised against the Israelites. Look again at verse 30. What are the spoils that Sisera would normally take from the people that he conquered? There's two of them. The second one mentioned is dyed embroidered material, fine linen, expensive things. But the first one is worded like this. A womb or two for every man. The word translated womb is used to refer of women who have been sold into sexual slavery. Women who become the objects of a man's sexual desire to be used and abused and raped at will. When Sisera would go out, he was conquering enemies and so wicked and cruel that he would take the women and give one or two to each of his men as playthings. So Deborah, with poetic justice, is envisioning Sisera's mother. He's done this a dozen times. Surely that's what's going on now. Deborah, knowing as she sings that what actually happened to Sisera who treated women so harshly and cruelly as objects, has been harshly put to death by the hand of a woman. Poetic justice. 
And then she ends the song in verse 31 with this expression of loyalty. Loyalty to the Lord who had saved them. So may all of your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in the night. And then the author of this book adds, And the land had rest for 40 years. Whereas chapter 4 gives us a historical account of what happened under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, chapter 5 gives us a theological interpretation of those same events. God was not distant. He was not disengaged, unconcerned in what appeared to be the hopeless circumstances of the Israelites during those 20 years that they were being cruelly raped and mistreated by Sisera. God was aware. He had not completely forsaken his people. Nor was he going to let his ultimate purpose for his people fail. God would, and as the narrative tells us, did ultimately win. The day of justice came. Judgment was served. What happened to Sisera is simply a foretaste of what will be done to all evil on the coming day of judgment that God has promised is already set on his calendar. There is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day when all evil will be finally judged. When justice will prevail. When God and his cause will be vindicated. Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 31, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees there's a coming day of judgment. So when it looks like evil is winning, when it looks like chaos and godlessness prevails without any abatement at all, here's the lesson for us, brothers and sisters. There's a day of recompense coming. There will be a payday someday. God will come, and He will judge, and all evil will be done away with forever. This is why Romans 12, 19 tells us as followers of Jesus, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The judge of all the earth can be trusted to do what is right. The judge of all the earth will come and make every wrong right in his time, in his way. Well, it's very fitting that chapter 5 should sing about the saving work of God. The very work that is recorded to us as as history, recorded for us as history in chapter 4. Because God's work of salvation is worth celebrating. And we will celebrate it, we will sing about it, we will be animated by it the more clearly we see it and understand it. When we recognize that God dramatically saves His people in ways that are designed for us to see and to celebrate His great salvation. Deborah and the people who experienced God's gracious salvation under her and Barak's leadership recognized this, and so they sang. Brothers and sisters, we also have seen God's greater salvation in Jesus Christ displayed in far superior ways than did those Old Testament saints. We see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We see God become flesh. We see God for us in laying down his life for us on a cross. We were held in bondage not by a cruel general who physically oppressed us but by sin that devastates us by a devil who hates us and would take us to hell and God sent his son into the world to be the rescuer of all who look to him Jesus comes to conquer sin to conquer death to conquer hell to conquer the devil and he has done so by his death and his resurrection and in Jesus we're set free in Jesus, we have the greatest salvation. We have eternal salvation. In Jesus, we ought to see the glory of God manifested in His grace, in His power, in His wisdom, all designed to get us to Himself and to take us safely home. Huh. We ought to celebrate. We ought to sing. We ought to be 
just overwhelmed with the clear displays of God's glory in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we lose sight of it. Sometimes it just seems like not that big a deal to us. And what we need is to be reminded, to be taught again, to be brought back to understand that this is what God, the creator of the universe, has done for us. So we sing, so we celebrate, so we praise, so we live lives of hope and confidence in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of cruelty, injustice, knowing that there's a day when our God, our Savior, will make everything right. And so we set our hope and our heart upon Him living for that day. Now there's somebody here this morning and you don't know this salvation. You know about it, but you don't know it. You know about Jesus. You could probably answer questions about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You don't know what it means to be rescued because you have never experienced that grace personally. How do you experience it? How do you come to it? Not by doing. Not by saying, well, okay, I'm going to change this. I'm going to fix my life here. No. You come to experience this by bowing right where you are and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. It's His work from beginning to end. You receive it. You receive it. And friend, I encourage you, I implore you, in behalf of God, I beg you, receive it now. Trust the Lord Jesus now. You'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us through these stories in the Old Testament. Thank you for the faithfulness of Deborah and Barak and Jael. Thank you for how they show us that you are the God who saves to the uttermost. All who come to faith in Jesus and through him are made right with you. May that be our song. May that be our testimony. May that be the testimony of people today who walked into this room, strangers to your saving grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.